Good day, everyone. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers at Menai Anglican Church. And this week is our last week in Titus. And I've loved listening to Paul's words of wisdom and instruction to this young Christian leader, Titus, living in Crete. It's been so helpful and practical and always so grounded in the gospel. And last week was no exception. Titus 3, verses 3 to 8, to us the very heart of Christianity, that wonderful, great news of the gospel that even though at one time every single one of us was disobedient, deceived, enslaved by sin, God in His kindness, in His mercy, in His love, saved us through the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place for our sin, washing, renewing, and restoring us into new life now and forever in Him. And not because of anything we've done, but because of His grace. The gospel really is the most incredible news. Just the other week, I was chatting with someone who's lived under the pressure of being a perfectionist for most of their life. And it was so good to be able to share with them that in the gospel, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, gives us His perfection regardless of how we might feel that we performed or successful or achieved or worthy we might be, He gives us His perfection and all He asks of us is that we might trust in Him. It's the most wonderful, freeing and reassuring news. There's nothing like the gospel. Now today, we pick up where Bruce finished last week in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things So those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This verse sets up where we're heading today. Just before this was that wonderful description of the gospel. And so now Paul's focus is on what it means to live out the gospel. For those who've put their trust in Jesus, what does that mean for their lives? And we're going to be looking at this from two angles. Firstly, how does the gospel shape our lives in the church? And how does the gospel shape our lives in the world? So first, how does the gospel shape our lives in the church? Well, there's a whole lot that we could think about in these final eight verses, but I'm going to keep it to just three brief observations. First, Paul says, avoid distraction. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. In Titus 1, we heard false teaching, false doctrine. It was a problem for the church in Crete. And now it comes up again. It seems they're getting hung up on dates and definitions, making additions to the Jewish law, uh, concocting these grandiose historical narratives sitting on street corners, discussing and debating for hours as if eternity depended on the outcomes of these conversations, when actually in light of eternity, these discussions were useless. So what should Titus do? Should he weigh in on these debates? There certainly would have been a lot of pressure for him to do so. Fact was being replaced by fiction, The truth of God was being replaced by the fabrications of man. And and if it's a leader's responsibility to teach sound doctrine, then shouldn't he then devote his time and energy to correcting these controversies? 
Well, surprisingly, Paul says, no, don't get distracted. I've told you what's profitable. That is the gospel. Now I'm telling you what is useless. If you get caught up in this, Titus, you will be wasting your time. It seems contradictory, but you see the same principle in Jesus. Again and again, Jesus is bailed up by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They question and they accuse. They're looking for a way to trap him. But again and again, Jesus avoids getting caught up in their distractions to redirect the conversation to things of eternal significance. That's the point here. The priority is the gospel. There's only so much time in a day. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere. You have to make choices. You have to prioritize. You have to decide what matters most. That's what this is about. There'll be times where the priority of the gospel will compel you to get involved where false teaching, false doctrine is leading people away from Jesus. But there'll also be times when that priority of the gospel will compel you to steer clear because your time is limited and it's not worth spending yourself, your energy, your emotion, your thought, your time on things that ultimately don't matter. Second, Paul says, address division, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, the word warn doesn't mean threaten. It's the same word that's used for a parent with a child who lovingly points out wrong behavior in order that the next time they might choose right behavior. So the purpose of the warning here, it's to be instructive, corrective. It's to restore, not remove. It's to be motivated by love and to come from a desire to heal, not to harm, to unite not divide. If the warning's rejected, Paul says, try again, right? Be patient, persevere. It's worth it for the sake of unity. But if they refuse to listen, if there's no change, no repentance, and if there's an ongoing desire to be disruptive and to divide, Paul says, have nothing to do with them. They are warped, sinful, self-condemned. Now, I'm sure some of us hear that and think, ah, Paul, did you have to go there? You see, this is what's wrong with Christianity and Christians. They're so intolerant and judgmental. But I think you and I all understand the need to address division. You may have had your own experience of the pain and inner turmoil that division can cause in friendships, marriages, workplaces, families. Relationships are so important to us, which is why Paul stresses the need to address division. Because when it isn't, often the cracks only get wider. When a church or a ministry or a group is divided, it's crippling. Tension, gossip, slander, people picking sides. It can become extremely uncomfortable and ultimately ineffective. People won't grow in faith. People won't come to faith. In the gospel, you see God in his kindness, in his mercy, in his love, make the first moves to heal the divide between us and him. 
and that is the model we're to follow. You and I are to do the costly, difficult thing, making those first moves, motivated by love to heal, restore and reunite where there's division. Unity is rare. And for that reason, a united church is a brilliant, shining light in this fractured, broken, divided world. And a united church will be a place of spiritual health and growth and life for its members. Finally, people matter. What I love in these closing verses is that you see the humanity of Paul. He's real, he needs friendships, he needs rest, he's concerned for the welfare of others, he's invested in the next generation. People matter to Paul. You know, one of the positive things to come out of COVID is that it's reminded us just how important people are. It's been great hearing stories of people checking in on one another, asking that simple question, how are you? But for me, the most encouraging picture that Paul paints in this letter regarding people is the way that the church is to take responsibility for one another. The young and the old, the men and the women involved in each other's lives so that each age and stage, you and I as Christians are living in such a way that our lives might point people to Jesus. You see it modelled in Paul's example in this letter here that he sends to Titus. And we saw it modelled in our church the other week when we heard from Lucy and Roz and Nigel. There's a wealth of wisdom and life experience as well as the energy and optimism of youth within this body of Christ here. Who are you investing in? To raise them up in faith and obedience, to spur them on to the finish line? Who are you looking to for leadership, for wisdom, encouragement and accountability? You know, you and I aren't meant to go it alone and you don't have to. One of the wonderful blessings is of the gospel is that God saves us and unites us with himself and brings us into a body, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is to be a place of mutual support and encouragement and learning and growth. So the gospel is to shape how we live in the church. We're to avoid distraction, address division and invest in one another because people matter. How then does the gospel shape, shape how we live in the world? Well, to learn from Paul's words in verses 1 and 2, we need to first ask, well, what was it like to be a Christian in Crete? You might remember from chapter 1, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So it wasn't a blissful, easy Christian society. From one of its own authorities, Crete was corrupt, abusive, greedy. It's the kind of turbulent, oppressive, pressure cooker situation where the Christians in Crete could decide to take matters into their own hands, rise up in rebellion, you know, quoting Bible verses to justify their defiance. But then you get this from Paul, verse 1. Remember the people to remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
Now, could you imagine their reaction hearing this? You know, really, Paul? Do you know what it's like for us here in Crete? What if I disagree with the authorities' decisions? Why should I submit to them when my citizenship's in heaven? I belong to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. What right do they have to tell me how to live my life? Can you see how this is important for us to consider? You and I live in an extremely turbulent time, not only because of the impact of COVID with its constant change, increased government control, loss of freedoms and and lifestyle for us, but at the same time, issues of race and gender and sexuality and religious freedoms are continually on the public arena. So how are Christians to conduct themselves in the world? Well, again, I just want to make three observations from Paul's words in verses 1 and 2. First, Christians in society should be clearly seen to obey the law by being subject to those in authority. Now, it's horrifying to hear those reports from Melbourne a few weeks back where one in four positive coronavirus cases were still going out. And you can understand the need to work to be social and exercise, but at what cost? Of all people, Christians, more than others, should not understand the kind of destruction that follows when the law is discarded. Naturally, we want to resist authority, and many have used the Bible to justify rebellion, turning to passages like Acts 4 and 5, where Peter and John are brought before the authorities and they're told to be silent, to stop speaking about Jesus, to which they reply, we must obey God, not man. But this is the exception, and it's not the license to then say and do whatever you want. Why is this the exception and not the rule? Well, it comes back to the gospel. Paul understands as he writes to these Christians in Crete, that the way they are seen to live in the world directly impacts the work of the gospel. For better or for worse, the words and actions of Christians, as reported in news headlines, as seen on news feeds in our our social media platforms, is directly linked to the impact of the gospel. And the priority is the gospel. Paul here wants to see more and more people saved through the good news of Jesus. So even though a Christian might be dismissed for being naive or weird or for believing in a fairy tale, they are not to live in such a way as to be dismissed because they are disruptive, defiant, disobedient, destructive. The message of the gospel will be offensive to some, but the life of the Christian is not to be offensive, such that it is the cause of some to dismiss the gospel. Second, Christians in society are to be marked by an eagerness to do whatever good they can. And it's out of a conviction of this truth that countless schools, hospitals and welfare programs have been established by Christians throughout history. And so if you're at school or uni or thinking about a career change, this is a great principle to apply. What could I do with my passions, my skills, my experiences for the good of society? 
Finally, Christians in society should not be slanderous or quarrelsome or seem to be starting fights or arguments, but a Christian should be a peacemaker, considerate, always gentle to everyone. Now, that's tough, isn't it? Especially when it comes to the public arena. As Aussies, we kind of feel like it's our right to have a go at those in leadership. But Paul says no. Slander no one. Resist the temptation to argue. Rather, pursue peace. In humility, consider the needs of others before your own and always be gentle to everyone. Now, that's not easy, is it? The thought of living that out to always be gentle to everyone on top of everything else we've already covered today about what it means to live out the gospel in the world, in the church. Really, when you consider all of that, it's overwhelming, which is why to finish, I want to come back to the heart of this chapter, which is in fact the heart of Christianity right there, smack bang in the middle of everything Paul has said about how we to live out the gospel in the world and in the church is a reminder of the gospel itself. Because we need that reminder to protect us from despair because when, not if, but when you and I fail to live up to the call of the gospel, it is that same gospel that reminds us that we are saved by grace not by works. And it's also that gospel that keeps us from becoming proud, arrogant, condescending, judgmental, self-righteous when we represent Christ in the world. Because again, you are saved by grace, not by works. That means we are no more deserving than anyone else. It's humbling, but it is that reminder which enables us to treat people with the same kindness and mercy and love that we first received in Jesus, that by grace, they too might come to put their trust in Jesus and be saved. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that by trusting in him, we can be saved. And this is not by works, but it is an act of grace. Thank you that in him we can be changed and renewed to live differently. And we pray that we would do that, that we would represent you well in the world, that we would keep the gospel as the priority that the gospel would guide our decisions, our actions, our words, our behaviour as we interact with people around us. And we pray also the gospel would guide the way that we relate to one another within the church, that it would be the priority, that it would shape how we care for and support and love each other and grow each other up in godliness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.